Welcome to this month's episode of the Thinking Commercially podcast, the business and commercial awareness podcast with me, Ben Triggs, and the wonderful Chris Stokes, who has written some fabulous books that you can find on all good bookstores, so make sure you do check them out. In this month's episode, we cover Elon Musk's potential acquisition of Twitter, the worries about a recession and what's causing these concerns, the decline of cash and how it's having an impact in society, and finally, the big retailers charging shoppers for returning their goods. All of this and more in this episode. Hi, Chris. How's it been going? It's been going very well, Ben. Summer is here. The sun is out. Life couldn't be better. I can imagine it's a very beautiful sunny day. And I know that we start this podcast by typically talking about weather, possibly moving to a bit of football. Um, but don't worry, everyone that's uh, that's not into the weather or not into football, we will be getting to uh, business in a second where we've got three core stories, as always, this month. Uh, we'll be uh, dissecting them, analysing them, giving you lots of insights ready for interviews or just talking knowledgeably when you start in the working world. And then we finish off with a little fun one as well. As always, you can get in touch with us. We've got our Instagram. We've got LinkedIn. Chris doesn't have Instagram or LinkedIn, I believe. So we're going to have to go through to the Thinking Commercially uh, uh, podcast channel. So make sure you go there. There's lots of great stuff on there as well. Chris, are you ready to get going with this? I am. I am. Looking forward to it. We've got some really good stuff this month, so let's not delay and crack on with the first story. So the first story that we're going to be focusing on this month is all about Twitter. And unless you've been living under a rock, you have probably seen on the news or on social media, as it might have been, that Elon Musk has potentially, and I say potentially because we'll cover that in, uh, in in a bit more depth later on, but looks like he's put in a bid for the company of $44 billion to take over the company and bring it back into the private sector. Um, it kind of has been a bit of a saga with Elon Musk and Twitter. He's been a shareholder in the in the company. He was invited to be on the board, but rejected it. And now um, has, uh, well, looks like he's put this deal through. However, in the time that we're recording this, the deal looks like it might be on hold because Elon Musk is worried that there are more fake accounts on the platform than Twitter are letting on. I think in the the, the general consensus across Twitter is that there's less than 5% of these kind of fake accounts, uh, whereas Elon Musk wants proof of this. So there's a bit of back and forth and it looks like the deal's delayed. Obviously, it could happen in the time before you're listening to this. But I think there are some interesting things to pick out both on this story specifically, but also kind of some wider business trends that I want to talk through with you, Chris. First question, though, um, Elon Musk is uh, is a tech guy. He's space guy. He uh, does uh, automated electronic cars. That's kind of his field. Why is he so interested in Twitter? Well, it's a good question. And, and I think it's because it's eye catching. And you're right. You know, he's he was he's been drawn to the space business with SpaceX. And I 
I think he likes the idea that it gives him a sort of platform. He's one of those business people um, who is the face of their company. And, and we've talked about uh, Michael O'Leary and Ryanair in the past, and, yeah. and there are business leaders who realize that they're part of the story. And that's, that's a good deal of the promotional budget actually accounted for, because if you're the face of the business and uh, the business is recognized through you, then you can get a huge amount of publicity just by dint of who you are. And I, I suspect also there might be a slight political element because I think he said that he would reverse some of what Twitter has been doing in terms of not giving particular people a platform like Donald Trump. And Elon Musk has said that he would reverse that. So there might be there might be a free speech political element to it as well. But I think it's principally because he creates eye-catching businesses and, and he's drawn to them. It's quite interesting what you said about uh, like having almost like a celebrity business person being the founder and actually um, a large proportion of Tesla's share price has been driven by the fact that um, people want to invest in Elon Musk, not so much Tesla. Obviously, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hugely valuable business, but Elon Musk definitely gives it that kind of extra edge, that extra publicity. Because quite often in, in businesses, the founders, possibly even the CEOs, like right at the top of the organization, almost want to make themselves in some ways a little bit redundant, especially if they're a founder looking to, to sell a business. They want to make sure that the business runs without them. So when someone comes to acquire it or invest in it, they're not just investing in the individual, um, which stock can go up and down. They're investing in a very solid solid business and that will allow them to, to step away. So actually this new idea of these kind of people that are the business, so to speak, and are associated so strongly with the business, A, I think is in some ways newish or have become more prominent in the last 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 few years. Um, but also, I think, um, can lead to a lot of market volatility, um, especially with someone so quite opinionated and so on social media as a, as a character like, like Musk. Um, one thing I want to go into, like Twitter lost money, Last year, they made a net loss of uh, just over two hundred uh, million dollars. They've only actually made profit twice in two thousand and eighteen and two thousand and nineteen, so they haven't been profitable for most of the time that they've existed. Forty four billion seems like a lot of money for a business that hasn't really proven it can make a profit. well, the the reason for that is that the markets tend to distinguish between two types of stock. what one of called growth stocks and the other of value. And with growth stocks, you're really investing in a, a jam tomorrow business. So you're investing in a business, not because it makes any money now, but because it's going to make a lot of money in the future. And, and probably the best example of that was Amazon, because Amazon, when it started, made no money at all. And yet when it started making money, it made it hand over fist and anybody who'd invested in Amazon at the outset would now be very rich indeed. And what's interesting about Amazon is that the very thing that has made it famous, uh, online retailing, is actually not making money anymore. It's more it's uh, cloud-based services which are making money. So Twitter falls very much into the, the, the growth type of stock. Value stocks are much more traditional businesses where... 
what you're paying for is the, 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 the nuts and bolts of the business, the plant and machinery, and the, or the underlying uh, intellectual property. And value businesses tend to be valued by the income that they generate. So the idea is that over time, a growth business, when it starts to make money, will become more of a value business. And what has happened uh, over the last few months is that a lot of growth stocks have, have gone down as there's been what's called a market rotation, as institutional investors move out of growth and into value. One of the reasons they've done that, and it's linked to one of the other stories we'll be covering um, in this episode, is that with interest rates going up, it effectively means that the future income that a growth stock promises is worth less in today's money. And that means that the value that markets put on growth stocks tend to go down. But Twitter is like Tesla itself, one of those stocks which is a growth stock. And so the value lies in its future stream of income. And the reason why it, it offers that is because of its market dominance. It's one of these businesses that benefits from what's called the network effect. So when Alexander Bell invented the telephone, a telephone on its own is useless. Uh, two phones means two people can talk to each other. But each time you add a phone to the network, it multiplies exponentially the number of people who can be in contact with each other. And Twitter is one of those. It's a business that that benefits from the network effect. So the bigger it grows, the greater, in exponential terms, its value could be. And with Twitter as, as well, and I'm talking from a potential customer, like, you know, I'm in marketing, ultimately paid media, typically spend a lot on with Google, with Facebook, possibly with, with, with Twitter. And a, I guess a slight um, predicament or problem that, that maybe Musk will face if trying to turn significant profit, um, as well as having a, a platform that encourages complete free speech, is that do advertisers want to be advertising their, their product, which they want to portray positivity, usually, with, with what they're doing, with within a stream which potentially could have a lot of negativity, a lot of hate, a lot of trolling. And I think that's that does from especially myself and the marketeers that I talk to and the advertisers on these platforms possibly put a bit of a dampener on how much people will spend on, on Twitter compared to um, maybe Instagram where you'll be sort of halfway between people's nice food images or holiday images or whatever it might be compared to Twitter where you could be sort of around sort of a lots of uh, comments which probably don't really reflect what the business might say. So quite an interesting thing and possibly why, because Twitter have a lot of uh, users and a, a lot of engagement, um, but potentially haven't been able to monetize it quite as strong as Facebook or Meta now um, or Google as well. And I think that's a partly down to it as well. Chris, I wanted to move on slightly from specifically um, Twitter, because this is an example of uh, a potential example of an individual taking a business private, so taking a publicly listed company private. Um, can you talk me through sort of the process of that and uh, also what are the advantages of that? Yes, certainly. I mean, private equity, um, which is essentially um, 
money that is uh, collected from institutional investors to create a fund that can then be used to, to buy up companies. Private equity is most famous for taking public companies private. So uh, if Elon Musk continues and, and is successful in buying Twitter, he will become the sole owner of Twitter uh, and it won't be a, a listed business. Why, why do people want to take public companies private? Um, two reasons. One is um, there's quite a regulatory burden on publicly listed companies because their stock is readily bought and sold. Uh, they have to comply with all sorts of reporting requirements. And um, that in itself can be pretty onerous. So that's, why, that's one negative against being a public company. The other is that markets can be quite skittish. They can take a very short-term view of a business. And one reason for taking a public company private, or for that matter, keeping a company private for longer than you otherwise might, is because if the investment you're making in the business is going to have a long-term payoff, it's going to take years rather than months to turn a profit. It's much easier to do that in a private context because you're not trying to keep uh, shareholders who can dump your stock uh, at any point. You're not trying to keep them happy. So uh, essentially, in a, in a public to private deal, uh, a fund, or in this case, an individual, um, to buys all of the available shares and becomes the, the sole or co-owner of the business with, with a syndicate of, of other owners. Um, there, there are more technical reasons uh, for structuring private equity deals in a certain way. A lot of them tend to use a lot of debt so that the target company is loaded up with debt. In other words, the, the people who buy it, instead of putting in a lot of equity to help it expand, they lend it money. And the reason they do that is because of the tax treatment, because any company, when it pays interest on debt, that interest is tax deductible because governments generally reckon that if companies are borrowing money, it's to invest. And they encourage that by allowing the, the interest on the loan to be tax deductible, which reduces your, your profit. Whereas by contrast, when you pay dividends out to shareholders, those dividends come out of taxed profit. So in effect, they're more expensive. And that's why a lot of target companies and private equity deals are loaded up with debt, which often attracts quite a lot of criticism. The other area that attracts some criticism to private equity players is that their business is that of buying and selling companies. That's what they're in the business of doing. But quite often, the way they're taxed on the money that they make is not as if it's income to their business, but they're taxed on a capital gains basis. So when they sell a company, having taken it private uh, and then invested in it, uh, lent it a lot of money, built it up, when they sell it, the gain they make, instead of being taxed as income, because that is their business, it's taxed as a capital gain. And generally speaking, capital gains are taxed at a lower rate than income tax. So that's the other aspect of private equity, which often attracts some, some criticism. Amazing. Yeah, really great uh, to run through that. I hope that's really clear for people at home. Final question on this, a nice quick one um, for you, Chris. Uh, this deal with Twitter is very much in the public eye. Um, there's no doubt about it. It's being talked about the delay. Does this cause 
problems for getting the deal done in the kind of experience that you've had? I think it causes two problems, and, and Elon Musk has already run into one of them, and that is when he ironically tweeted that the deal was on hold, uh, Twitter's price fell by a quarter. So one of the problems with doing a deal like this very much in the public eye is that it leads to market volatility. And Musk has got form in this area. The Securities and Exchange Commission upbraided him in the past when he came out and said he was going to take Tesla private, which of course played havoc with Tesla's shares in the market. And in the end, he didn't actually do that. So that, that's one of the problems. You can cause market volatility. The, the other is that most of these deals... Uh, take place behind closed doors because the buyer has got to do a lot of due diligence. They've got to look at the, the books of the target company. They've got to go through all of the contracts that it's got to satisfy themselves that the business they're buying is as they expect it to be. And so if there are any uh, bumps in the road, as it were, all of that can take place in private and doesn't affect the, the public price of the target company. And also there's a lot of reputational risk that attaches to takeovers. So if a company backs out of taking over another company, often it's, it's management are tarnished by that. Whereas if you do deals um, kind of behind closed doors and only announce them when they're, they're about to come to fruition, then you reduce that reputational risk considerably. Yeah, really, really makes sense, Chris. So thank you so much for taking through and we're gonna leave it there for that story. So the next story that we're going to be covering this month is all about the economic performance in the UK and globally. And the worry that a lot of commentators are talking about at the moment that we might be heading for a recession either later this calendar year or early next. I think a lot of people uh, hear the word recession and start worrying. And there are definitely uh, worrying outputs potentially could happen. Um, but what we want to do is go into the kind of the economic detail of it or touch on the economic detail of it. Look at uh, what's likely to happen or what you should be seeing and what you should be thinking about from kind of a commercial um, perspective. Um, but also just showing that there are opportunities as, as well out there at the moment. And it's not a uh, as grey picture. Obviously, if you read the sort of business news, sometimes you're going to get headlines saying, are we heading for a, the next global recession and stuff like that? Ultimately, they want to uh, have headlines that sell newspapers. So always do um, bear that in mind. And as you know, on this podcast, especially from, from Chris, we are uh, always positive about, about what's happening. So uh, so you you won't be going away feeling worried, hopefully, in the next sort of 10, 12 minutes as well. Um, but one of the things we are seeing, though, is that the cost of living is is rising. Um, you'll be feeling that um, potentially your, your, yourselves at, at university, um, but with you know bills, petrol, um, general price rises caused by the pandemic, but also conflict uh, in, in in Ukraine as, as 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 well, and you know the data that prices are going up and wages aren't keeping up with those price increases, and more and more. Um, families that are kind of just about managing um, are, are starting to struggle. And I think, you know, we've all read sort of on BBC stories of, of people having to make sort of difficult choices, which is always, always tough to, to, to read about. Um, but Chris, before we get kind of started on, on that, um, so we've got all of this talk that potentially we're heading towards a UK or, or global recession. 
Um, but I wanted to ask you, what is a recession um, for, for one and why is this speculation happening at the moment? In terms of what do we mean by recession, there, there is a kind of technical definition, which is it's two quarters of declining or negative growth. Mm. And the reason why economists take that seriously is um, it's a bit like uh, corporate profits. If a company's profits are not increasing, if they're flatlining, then the business is probably shrinking. And so economists regard a successful economy as one that is always growing. So if it's if it's flatlining or declining, then that means it, it's probably shrinking. But you're absolutely right in what you say, Ben, about newspaper headlines, because the, the word recession itself is a very gloomy word. So as soon as it's mentioned, one tends to think, you know, it's kind of the end of the world economically. But um, I, I myself, I'm not that worried about it. I, there is um a bigger issue that we face as a country in a market, and that is that our productivity generally over the last 10 years and looking ahead to the future is it's it's not increasing as fast as it needs to and as fast as a successful economy would. Um, so I'm actually more concerned with, with that long-term trend than I am with whether in the short term we face a recession or not. Um, Why do we face recession at the moment? Well, the kind of the glib answer is because the Bank of England is raising interest rates and it's raising interest rates because that's the natural thing to do to control inflation. And inflation, as everybody knows, is prices going up. And I think what economists and market commentators are most concerned about is what's called stagflation. Um, uh, I remember the last time the UK suffered from stagflation, um, and that's when you've got a combination of inflation, so increasing prices, but stagnation, which means you've got very low or negative growth. And that, that's a kind of double whammy. What Chris was talking about, the Bank of England raising interest uh, rates. So they're up at 1%, which typically means that people, let's say mortgages, for instance, are, are likely to go up. The cost of borrowing money uh, goes up. So people are less likely and businesses are less likely to borrow um, as much money. So I guess in a sort of way, money is not circulating as freely around the economy. And that's trying to cool it so that prices don't go up. Obviously, the more money circular, circulating around the economy, the more uh, product or services are being bought by 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 consumers and uh, uh, driving that kind of price increase, especially with stuff like um, supply chains being clogged up potentially because of the pandemic, which again kind of has a, a compounding impact on uh, on on what we've just spoken about. So potentially we're not going into recession at the moment, and the OBR, the uh, Office of Budget Responsibility. Um, predicted the UK economy would actually grow uh, 3.8% this year, and that was reasonably recent back in the in the spring. So there are you know positive signs that the economy is going in the right direction, with some challenges, of of course. But what signs should we be looking out for um, to suggest that a recession or something similar is imminent? Two things to say in response to that, Ben. Just first of all, what's very odd about what we're going through at the moment is that. The Bank of England raising interest rates is a is a natural response to uh, domestic inflation, but this inflation is not domestic inflation. It, it's what economists call, and I, I love this word, so I'm going to use it. They call it an exogenous shock, which means basically a shock to the economic system from outside. 
And as you were saying, Ben, about, about the conflict in Ukraine, as one commentator put it, the biggest oil exporter in the world has just invaded the world's biggest grain exporter. So the biggest producer of energy has invaded the biggest producer of food. And that's why the price of both has gone absolutely through the roof. And then on top of that, you've got the bottled up demand for energy post pandemic. Now that industry is coming back online, all of that taken together. There's not much if you're the Bank of England that, that you can do about it. And you're also faced with the hangover from the, the financial crash of 2008, when through quantitative easing, a lot of money was pumped into the global economy. And that, that's money that central banks have over time been wanting to kind of rein back in. So part of the reason for the Bank of England raising interest rates is to tackle those issues as well. So it's a very, it's a very if you like, blunt and small instrument to try to tackle some, some, some big issues out there. But to, to answer your question about what are the, what are the indicators that people look at, um, there, there are two. One, one, is, one is what's called the yield curve. And the other, in terms of inflation expectations, is the way UK government bonds, which are called gilts, the way they're trading in the market. So uh, when, when uh, bonds go down in value, their, uh, their yield, their effective interest rate goes up because you're paying less for uh, the same level of income. So that means that the effective uh, yield that a bond pays is, is that much greater. So by tracking movement in the UK gilt market, you can get a sense of what expectations for inflation are in the next few years. And certainly within four years, the UK gilt market is suggesting that inflation will be below 4%. And that's a very accurate indicator, uh, as is the yield curve. Amazing. Yeah, really good to talk uh, those through. Hope people got a bit of a sense of it. And there's probably a lot of Googling that people might need to do around it as well. It's a really interesting topic uh, as well. So the one thing that um, maybe would slightly confuse people is that the jobs market is fantastic at the moment. So actually, I think there was an article on BBC uh, News that I was reading uh, this morning that for the first time ever, there are more job vacancies than there are unemployed people in the UK, um, which suggests that there is a, a, a job for every single, every single person. And ultimately, if you people are earning money, and sure, inflation is quite high, so they might not be earning quite enough money. But if people are earning money, typically, that is a sign that the economy is doing well. What's your thoughts on that? Well, that's very interesting, Ben, because that is actually the reason why the Bank of England has raised interest rates specifically now, because what the Bank of England is worried, worried about is uh, a very tight employment market. In other words, um, there are lots of vacancies, they can't be filled. Um, uh, those who can and want to be in work are in work. And that is its self-inflationary because they start to demand higher wages because they, 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 because they can, because they've got the leverage. And that stokes inflation. So one reason for raising interest rates is to damp down the employment market because when interest rates go up, it costs more for businesses to borrow. They're less likely to take people on. But you're absolutely right. At the moment, the, the three areas of shortage are in health and social care, where there's a shortage of 216,000 
uh, workers in hospitality, 164,000. And especially for listeners to this podcast, in scientific tech and professional, uh, there are uh, 130,000 jobs which need to be filled. And there's a very interesting bellwether, which some market commentators are using, which will be relevant to those of you thinking of the law. There's um, a listed company called Keystone Law. And the way it works is that it essentially takes on self-employed lawyers and then it, uh, they do the work and it bills the client and pays a large part of what it bills the client onto the individual lawyer. And Keystone Law, which listed a few years ago, has been uh, taking on more and more lawyers every year. And for the first time, it's attracting fewer lawyers because more of them are in jobs. And so that's been regarded as quite an interesting indicator of uh, what the the job market is like in in the professional services sector? Yeah, really interesting stuff. So a lot of talk is whether the government should be doing more to control energy prices, for instance, or to uh, quell inflation. Typically, they've decided to not blow big budgets on um, cutting inflation or trying to cut inflation or cutting energy bills. Um, do you think this is the right move at the moment? Well, I, again, it's really interesting if you look at it in terms of trend, because I think the pandemic and the government's response to the pandemic and the response of governments all over the world, which was right you know, to introduce furlough schemes and loans for business and so on. I think it's, I think it's changed our view of government. I think it's built up an expectation amongst us that government is there to help us when things are bad. And so, uh, in a sense, in the past, government's job was to provide certain types of service and to keep spending under control. Whereas now our view is government is there to, to help us when we face these, these exogenous shocks, as it were. So I think there is an expectation. And the question then is, if government is expected to bail people out, where does it get the money from? And if you look at Ofgem, which is the uh, watchdog that looks at uh, retail pri- energy prices for customers, as it itself says, it can tr- control prices at the retail end, but it can't control prices at the wholesale end. So one of the ideas which has been mooted but so far rejected is of a windfall tax. Now, listeners to the podcast will know that I'm pro-business, so you would have thought that I wouldn't think a windfall tax was a terribly good idea. But actually, I personally think it's a great idea here. And the reason for that is that the amount of money we're talking about is pretty chunky. It's several billion pounds to bail out those most in need of help with energy prices. And a windfall tax on oil and energy companies would actually produce several billion pounds, a chunky amount. So there's, there, there's a direct read across. And interestingly, Bernard Looney, the CEO of BP, was asked specifically about this. He, he, he was asked, if the government imposed a windfall tax, would that reduce your investment in green energy? And he said, no, it wouldn't. We're still going to invest in green energy. And I think that's as good an indication as you can have that the energy uh, sector is expecting some sort of windfall tax because these profits that they've been making at the wholesale level have got nothing to do with whether they're running good businesses or efficient businesses. It's just the result of demand. So they'd be the first to say this is money that, you know, in a sense, we haven't earned 
And so if there's a good reason to hand it over for distribution, not to shareholders, but to citizens who need the help specifically because of energy prices, the government should do it. Yeah, really interesting stuff. And we'll leave that story there. The third story that we're going to be covering this month is all about cash, something that you might not have on you right now, probably not in your wallet, potentially. Um, You may have not even done a cash transaction um, this month, this year at all. Lots of people, especially young people, are going cashless. However, I think it is worth talking about. You might think, well, I'm going to be going and doing banking, consulting. It's all done on transfers and digital and stuff like that. However, there is a large wave of the population. And ultimately, business is there to service people um, or other businesses, but always goes back to the people. And there's lots of people out there that still are utilizing cash, potentially even reliant on cash to go about their daily business, to do what they need to do, to budget, to, to, to be part of UK society. Um, so we want to go into a little bit of the societal and the business elements uh, around this story and get you guys thinking um, about it from possibly a slightly different um, perspective. The reason this has come up now is that actually in the most recent Queen's speech, um, there was a, uh, a short part of it, which was a pledge to protect those who rely on cash. And actually, there's been a few a few commentators, I think, which the uh, consumer magazine um, suggested that maybe we're drifting towards a, uh, a cashless society without thinking about the implications of it. So we're here, we're going to be thinking about the implications of it. Um, I don't know if anyone will will listen and take note of it, but we're, we're definitely going to cover it because I think it is um, important. Chris, my first question, which might sound like a slightly controversial one, but is, is a cashless society the, the right way to go? Well, it's interesting, Ben, because, um, and I'm glad we're talking about this because my, my views on this have, have changed. Um, I, I used to think that it was obvious that a cashless society was the way forward, but I, I no longer hold that view. Mm. And what, what it's very easy to forget in this country is that, believe it or not, we have one of the most advanced retail banking systems. There is more use of, of cards, debit and credit cards here than in virtually every other European country. And certainly in the States where you would have thought that they would be technologically very advanced when it comes to retail banking, they're not. They still use checking accounts. They still write uh, checks out to each other. Well, obviously, that's not what they call them because a check in the States is a bill. But it's also quite hard to transfer funds across state lines. Um, so... It's very easy for us in the UK to assume that a cashless society is the way forward because we often forget that we're actually in a a very advanced uh, retail banking system. Um, One of the things that mitigates against cash is that, uh, I know it sounds absurd to say it, but cash actually costs money, you know, to produce banknotes and coins, to distribute them, to take them back in when they're wearing out. All of that has a frictional cost, which electronic banking doesn't have. So in a sense, that that militates against the use of cash. So on the face of it, one would think, yeah, cash is society. It's a no-brainer. Of course, it's the way forward. So just to cover a few stats related to this. So 
if you think about the UK population, it's what about 60 to 70 million um, people in the UK and 13.7 million people have a cashless life. And I'm sure a lot of people listening probably uh, have that cashless life. However, on the flip side, 1.3 million are unbanked adults. So they purely deal in cash. And that increases quite a lot if you think about people that have bank accounts but don't access uh, it through the internet, through um, platforms online. And so actually what's caused a lot of problem lately is with branches shutting down of different high street banks, um, cash machines, free-to-use cash machines shutting down as well, people have felt disenfranchised by the financial system. And actually, when you're thinking about it, you might work, let's say, at Lloyds Banking Group or NatWest or, or, or Halifax and think, right, well, actually, we're making these cuts because it's the right thing to do, but society's moving in that way. But you've got to make sure that you're bringing people on the journey that we're going for. It's all very well saying cashless society is the, is the way forward. Look how great Sweden is, which I think... Um, cash transactions account for just 1% of Sweden's uh, GDP. And I think by next year or the year after, they'll be pretty much 100% cashless. But you also need to put the infrastructure in place to make sure that everyone is on board with it and we don't leave people behind. Because ultimately, there's a lot of customers out there that are utilizing cash, that are still using it, um, that, that need to be taken on that, on that journey. And if we can't take them on that journey, and I think... Uh, some stats related, there was about 8 million still reliant on cash um, as well. And there are some advantages with cash. Like a lot of people actually um, prefer budgeting with cash. It's easier to budget. I think that's actually studies have been done that when the money isn't real as such, it's online, um, people struggle more with, with budgeting compared to knowing they've got 100 quid in their pocket for, for the week shop or whatever it, whatever it might be. So, so yeah, so I think it's just a case of really making sure that we're thinking about it. One quick thing, um, Chris, I went to have my hair cut the other day and um, in a, uh, in a, in a Ballum um, shop in Southwest London, they do cash only. So that's fine. I got, got my cash out and went in there, but increasingly a lot of shops are going on the flip side that they are saying that you cannot use cash in this place. Is that right? Well, the re reason why I've changed my view on this is for the very reasons that, that you gave, Ben, that it's um, those uh, in a minority who, whose voice is often easily ignored, um, who basically are cut out of the retail banking system. And it's the, it includes people from diverse backgrounds, those with disabilities. And the knock-on effect can be quite dramatic because without the capacity to bank, being, as you say, unbanked, it can be very hard to establish your identity. It can be almost impossible to get work because employers want to pay your pay in, in, into a bank account. So I absolutely agree with you that um, we need to be very careful about excluding people. And I think if you as a retailer, exclude people by saying that you will only take card payments. You've got to be very careful about who your customers are, because I think one of the things that when we were talking about this earlier, I really liked about your take on it is you've got to put the customer at the heart of everything. And if you're um, basically excluding 
quite a large possible percentage of your customer base, that's not a good thing. Now, one of the ways in which we could address this, one of the other things that we're used to in this country is free banking. And free banking is actually quite unusual. In most countries, including the States, you have to pay for bank accounts. You have to pay for the the different add-ons that they can provide. So essentially, my view is that if those of us who are banked have to pay more Mm -hmm. to enable those who are unbanked to continue to use cash, then we should be prepared to do that. Yeah, 100%. I think uh, there is a big distinction, which hopefully you're realizing through this conversation between uh, cash being used for business, which I think a lot of people sort of maybe veer towards the negatives. If you pay someone kind of cash in hands, there's possibly that um, feeling that they might not be declaring it um, fully. Ultimately, there's less of a record if you're paying cash compared to if you're doing electronic um, transfers. But taking it away from that kind of business element, which often we think about to the human element, I think uh, it does make it feel very much more like there is something to be said for ensuring that cash is still in circulation, but also can be utilized across uh, across different shops. And also like there are sometimes um, potential problems. I was in a, uh, in a pub um, a couple of weeks ago and their electrics went. And they only had um, card payment and they couldn't take the payment at that point um, because ultimately everything didn't work. If they were able to take cash, which the, the guy behind the bar said that he, he couldn't, they could have recorded it. They've still got the till. They could have recorded the transactions. They know the price list and they could have put them through the till at a later date when it was coming forward. But it was an example of like them not being able to go for kind of a plan B which I found quite amusing that I was uh, having there, having my uh, drinks at a, sort of a, a London pub and uh, uh, they weren't able to take, take anyone's money, which, uh, which seems very bizarre um, as well. But Chris, are there any other, other than maybe uh, the electrics going and um, not having a plan B, are there any other disadvantages to being more electronic in, in, in our transfers and cash payments, especially as individuals maybe as we're focusing a bit more on it uh, now? Well, um, one of the things which I, I think you've touched on is is privacy. Um, in this country, we've 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 all got um, uh, a kind of almost anarchic streak that makes us feel we don't want Big Brother to kind of supervise mm. and spy on what we're doing, which I think is one of the reasons behind behind crypto. So. Um, if we were completely cashless society, everything would be electronic. It would be much easier to track what we individually do. So I think there's a kind of uh, uh, resistance to that. But actually, I've got an overriding concern about a completely cashless society, and that is um, we we know that there are actors, as they're called, uh, globally that are trying to subvert capitalist systems um, and breach um, cybersecurity defences. We haven't yet had somebody acting on such a scale that they can knock out a country's banking system or utterly disrupt their their financial markets. But my fear is that this is going to happen at some point. And if you are a completely cashless society and you're utterly dependent on electronic banking and finance, if and when that happens, the results are going to be absolutely catastrophic. 
We're going to end that story there. That may be not the positive note that we uh, always promise on these, um, but we'll leave it there. I I, I can inject a a note of levity, and that is that, uh, Ben, you were very lucky that when the the payment system crashed in the pub you were in, it was Mm. your round. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it was uh, it was ideal. I timed it very well. Uh, so it was ideal. Yeah. Um, yeah, but maybe not quite as good for, for security as well. But hey, ho. Um, cool. We'll leave it there for that this this month um, and head on to our next story. Our final story of this month, a little bit more of a lighthearted one, but definitely covers a business trend that we're doing and something that you might be familiar with. If you've um, bought an item of clothing online recently, the likelihood is you would have kept it, but a large proportion of them you would have sent back. And actually, unless you're in one of the stores that we're going to talk about, you would have had the opportunity to do a completely free return. And because of the pandemic, and even before the pandemic, trends have shifted in fashion, uh, high street fashion especially, is that you will potentially order multiple things, knowing that some things you will uh, return back to the stores. However, shops are starting to clamp down on people doing this. So one of the ways that they have started doing that is by charging people who want to return items. And one of the biggest high street shops actually announced that they would be charging £1.95 for the items that you want to return. You can obviously do it in store for free, um, but if you want to do it uh, via post, you have to pay just under £2. And that was, of course, Zara, following the lead of Uniqlo, Next, and a couple of other high street shops that have done the same. It might not feel like a massive fundamental story. It's only a kind of a couple of quid. But I think me and Chris believe that it ties into so much, A, that we've talked about and so much in the, in the, in the business world. So my first question to you, Chris, is that there's three potential reasons why a company will want to do this. First of all, it's good for the environment. Sending lots of stuff out, having lots of stuff sent back is, uh, is not ideal. Second of all, it's good for profit for these companies. Um, A free return, if someone returns an item, it leads to a 30% profit loss on that item for the company. Um, And each year it's costing retailers 7 billion a year doing free returns. And the third thing is getting people back to shops. Even if it costs a couple of quid to return, are you more likely to actually go into the shop to return something um, if you know you can get it for free? Well, I think what's interesting about this is that um, retailers are very, very smart. So when they start doing things like this, it's really worth looking at in terms of a trend. And it's part of commercial awareness to think to yourself, what, why are they doing this? And, and the reasons you've given, Ben, are absolutely spot on. Um, Getting people back into the shops, I think, is actually a really important one uh, because um, we've talked in the past about how uh, shopping moved from being uh, a necessity, uh, you know, going around high street shops, buying the food for the day to a leisure activity. And when you're um, uh, a, a retailer with a large branch network, you've got to increase the footfall. You've got to get people coming back because 
people, uh, when they go into shops as, as part of um, a leisure activity, they're more inclined to impulse buy and they're more inclined just to look at what is generally available and buy things that they otherwise wouldn't. So not having them in the shop is actually quite detrimental to businesses. And one of the other reasons that I, th I think is really interesting is just using small incremental ways of offsetting cost in the way that the supermarkets have done with home delivery, you, you basically pay something like three or four pounds of delivery, or you subscribe over a period, uh, paying an amount up front to have free deliveries. And, and these incremental sources of, of income of return can be quite important for businesses. So I think it's really interesting looking at these small incremental ways of, of offsetting costs. But, but for me, What's really interesting about the story is that it's Zara, because Zara is owned by Inditex, and Inditex is a, a hugely successful Spanish business founded by somebody called Amancio Ortega, who's in his late 80s. He's still alive. He started off as a market trader, and the reason why Inditex has been so successful is because he brought down supply chains. So they still, as far as I understand it, manufacture the clothes in Spain, but they reckon they can get new fashions into their shops within a fortnight. And they pioneered this idea that once a collection is sold out, it's sold out. So you either buy it now when you see it, uh, or it's gone and you won't be able to buy it again. And uh, he's one of the wealthiest people uh, in Europe, not let alone Spain. So anything that Inditex does has got to be watched because it will be very, very clever. And of course, Zara is owned by Inditex. That's what makes this story really interesting from my point of view. And of course, there was a bit of a backlash. You might have seen on Twitter, going back to our, our first story, you would have seen a backlash against Zara for, for bringing this in. However, as sort of Chris is, is saying, with Zara such an influential um, part of the UK high street, European high street um, and, and fashion, um, you wouldn't be surprised to see a number of different high street shops um, following that trend. And I think actually, you know, this idea around the environment um, is, is, is very strong, this need to shop more sustainably. For instance, if you go into the shop, five to 10% of the clothes you buy, you're likely to return. However, dependent on the retailer, um, shoppers online return somewhere between 15 and 40%. And you think about all of the steps in that, and uh, how much it can cost, not just for you know the profits of these companies, but just generally for the environment, from delivery um, to processing in 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 different warehouses. Um, it's kind of part of this idea that we've got to shop a little differently to how we're doing, and a little bit like how people were up in arms when it was going to cost us first five p to buy a uh, a plastic bag in, in in Sainsbury's. Now I think sometimes it's up to twenty p, um, but these sort of attitudes change and people don't begrudge anymore. Maybe you do actually back at home, but I don't sense that people begrudge paying 10 or 20p for, for a plastic bag. And it's definitely had that massive impact. It reduced it hugely in the first couple of years, and that's continued um, to this day. My final question goes a little bit more into the sort of tech space. And we talk a lot about people buying lots of stuff online and then trying it on and then returning quite a lot of stuff. But my sense is, is that technology might be able to solve the problems for this as well. Like for instance, if 
And I've seen sort of apps like this, this, this before or, or different on websites, but I bought a TV the, the, the other day and they have this thing where you can kind of take photos of your room and you can actually see the TV in your like virtual room. And I do wonder whether, you know, going into the fashion industry, and as I say, I have, I have definitely seen this before, whether you can get that feel of how clothes would potentially look like on an avatar of, 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 of yourself before purchasing it. So you get the kind of more in-shop experience of being able to try something before it goes. And it's quite interesting that they put this £2 or £1.95 return on, on clothes. But actually, as tech develops, maybe uh, we'll go into a sort of a different way of kind of a virtual experience, especially with like the metaverse of, of buying clothes, which could be more sustainable. What are your thoughts, Chris? Oh, well, I think that's already happening, isn't it? Mm. Because there, there are um, uh, apps that enable you to try on things virtually, um, to, to use makeup and see what you'll look like in 12 weeks' time. But I'm, I'm, I'm shocked to learn that you've just bought a TV. I'm not quite sure what a TV is these days. Mm. I mean, I thought modern, young, with it people watch TV on, on the laptops. That's what I do. So what on earth are you doing? investing in old age technology like tv i have no idea ben that is very true I, I'm, unfortunately i'm uh, i'm millennial still so uh, still like those kind of old bits of bits of technology but no um i think there's still something nice about having a, a tv and watching a film or a sport I've, I'd say i don't really go out that much anymore so i need to invest in this sort of stuff so i've got more books bigger TV and stuff like that, just purely because I'm not um, spending my money on the, the nights out and the, and the drinks so much. But there we go. That's what happens. I turned 30 last month. So uh, you become increasingly boring. So if you're listening to this, um, yeah, make sure you uh, enjoy your life before, before kind of going for sort of the big TVs. And you only need to really watch occasional bit of TV on your laptop at your age. So all good. I think we'll leave it there. So really appreciate you joining us. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much, everybody. What a fantastic episode. Really big thank you to Chris for all of his insights and hope you enjoyed it at home. Do make sure that you check out our LinkedIn. Make sure that you're checking out our Instagram. Loads of great stuff around the episodes can be found there and you can join the community of other people thinking commercially just like you. Until next time, have a great month.